I think a lot of the benefits to eccentric training, we want to kind of zoom in on those mechanistic things, but a lot of the, um, the tangible benefits of this training or programming decision really um, are with longer term application. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So for today's Pace Performance Podcast, I am absolutely delighted to welcome John Waggle, who appeared on a Sportsmith Live, which are the roundtable live events that are happening uh, every other week. And he appeared with Pete Burridge and Mike Young to discuss eccentric training. So after that event, given how successful it was and how much unbelievable information was shared on eccentric training by John and the other two guys. It was an absolute no-brainer to get John on for this episode. So like I say, this episode is packed full of information on eccentric training. So programming, the use of flywheel technology, where we can go if we haven't got budget for something like flywheels, how we can incorporate eccentric training in group settings with individuals. So there's loads and loads of information on eccentric training, which is getting a lot of traction at the minute. There's been a lot written about it. There's been a lot of talk about it. So keep up to date with what's going on with eccentric training and have a little listen to the next hour with John Waggle. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. I Measure You have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with John Waggle. John, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to get you back on. 
after you were kind enough to give up an hour of your time to join us for the Mastermind on Eccentric Training a couple of weeks ago. Oh, thank you for having me back, Rob. This is an honor. It's a pleasure to have you. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, we didn't do intros in the Mastermind because we've got a set time of an hour, so I bin them off and say they're a waste of time. But I think in the podcast, it's quite nice to have a little bit of an intro to um, to the guests, even if it's just a couple of minutes so people get a bit of an insight into uh, into the background and whatnot. So if you wouldn't mind doing the honours, that'd be great. Yeah, um, so I guess I'll... I'll kind of start at where I'm at now and, and work backwards a little bit. I currently work uh, for the Kansas City Royals uh, in Major League Baseball. I'm our Director of Performance Science Player Development. I uh, work with a lot of really great people here and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful organization. Uh, prior to being with the Royals, uh, I did my PhD at East Tennessee State. I uh, worked under Dr. Mike Stone uh, within kind of the lab side of my PhD and then on the, on the practical coaching side. I uh, got the opportunity to work under Dr. Brad DeWeese. Um, before that, I was mostly in the men's basketball world uh, on the SNC side. Um, worked at DePaul University uh, for a number of years. And then uh, actually prior to getting into SNC, I was a baseball coach uh, for a couple of years and played in college. And so it's, it's kind of blended itself well uh, now that I've transitioned into baseball on the sports science SNC side because um, that's just been helpful to be able to speak that language and, and know the game very intimately. So anyone that knows you on the research side will probably know you for your your interest in eccentric training, which is going to be the, the crux of the conversation today. But where did that interest come from? Um, it was actually uh, an itch that Dr. Stone wanted to scratch for, for a number of years. And so I, I wasn't necessarily uh, interested in it before kind of venturing into what I was going to do for my dissertation. And Dr. Stone had some unpublished data, as did Dr. DeWeese, and got to looking at that and then poured into the existing literature, uh, decided to put all that together and write a review paper. And through that, I really kind of started to uh, have my interest sparked and constructed a study with the help of, of my entire committee, which was, you know, Dr. Stone, Dr. DeWeese, Dr. Sato, um, and then an outside committee member, Chris Tabor. Um, and so kind of through all that, I got the opportunity to construct a study that really took a deep dive uh, into some areas that hadn't yet been explored with the AEL. And so um, I was uh, I was kind of the, the the way in which Dr. Stone was able to answer some critical questions that he had. But I was I was happy and honored to do that. Nice. So let's dive straight in. You mentioned AEL. I won't I won't leave it 45 minutes to ask you what that actually stands for, like I did on the Mastermind, which I was um, I should have done a lot sooner. But firstly, benefits of eccentric training. And I know that's a big question, and I'm probably guilty of doing it again, like I did on the Mastermind, and, and bunching eccentric training altogether, when, as Mike Young said on, on, that, on, that, um, on that Mastermind, that this is a spectrum, so it, yep. is a, it is a big area. So apologies for chucking this at you, but benefits of eccentric training for the listeners out there. Yeah, so, you know, and we'll get to the kind of the differentiation later, uh, I assume, on, you know, tempo versus flywheel versus AEL and plyos and whatever else you want to put into that bucket. But, um, you know, really the the benefits of eccentric training, to me, it really just comes down to that the force producing isn't constrained by lengthening velocity. That's, that's a really critical piece there because we can produce really high forces at really high speeds, which happens to occur quite often. Uh, in sport. And, and so logically then, even if we 
um, kind of bring the neuromuscular side into it. We're able to pr produce a lot more force per motor unit recruited. Uh, all of that um, kind of just pairs pretty well with how we need to adequately prepare athletes uh, for the demands of sport. And I think a lot of the benefits to eccentric training, we want to kind of zoom in on those mechanistic things, but a lot of the, um, the tangible benefits of this training or programming decision really um, are with longer term application. So that's where we see some really interesting things happen um, in terms of fast fiber, cross-sectional area changes, more explosive performance. We have you know longer fascicles and more sarcomeres in series, stronger anabolic signals, stiffer muscle tendon units, you know, all kinds of benefits to a variety of athletic you know, endeavors. And so um, when we start to look at the longer term application of eccentric training and how we can mix that into program design, that's to me where the benefits really start to show themselves. Do you think it's because of the work of yourself and, and others that has brought about a bit of a resurgence in the interest in eccentric training as of as of recently? Um, you know, I, I seems think to have been. Yeah, I, I do think it's it's gaining it's been gaining popularity for you know a number of years, and and I think the um, you know really commercialization of flywheel has been a big a big part of that. Um, and there's a ton of researchers that have done brilliant work. Um, in this space, uh, you know, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Hoff, Jamie Douglas, um, Melissa Harden. Yeah, I'm going to miss a lot of names, but th there were a ton of people that just kind of happened to enter this space all at the same time. And so um, I, I do think that having some new information available uh, has definitely generated some interest in the S&C community. So you've mentioned a couple of things there around fiber type and, and whatnot, but direct links to athletic uh, dynamic performance, what kind of things, what kind of benefits are we going to gain from, again, bucketing all this stuff into the eccentric training area? What kind of benefits are we going to get? Yeah. Uh, so on the shortening velocity side, that's where the, the sarcomeres in series come into play. Um, but on the injury risk side, we're getting longer fascicles as well, which you know, even something as simple as the Nordic leg curl, uh, very well support, especially when you do add eccentric overload um, to the Nordic leg curl. It really seems to have an influence on muscle architecture. Um, there does seem to be a preferential hypertrophy to fast fibers, which can help us in a couple of ways. Like obviously, you know, we're going to have bigger, more forceful fast twitch fibers as a result there, but there's also a potential that um, or, or a theoretical uh, situation there where we have less drag from the slow twitch fibers just because those fast twitch ones are now making up a, a larger uh, relative proportion of the whole muscle cross-sectional area. Um, and then as mentioned before, like you, you do have a stiffer muscle tendon unit, which is going to lend itself very well to, to dynamic performance improvements too. So that kind of collection of things, uh, you know, tends to be what I would point to the most for linking to dynamic performance. But as I mentioned earlier too, as you continue to zoom out on this, um, there's stronger anabolic signaling with eccentric training. You have more satellite cell activation. Um, that, that in theory is going to get you some more muscle size changes, though as I mentioned, that's more at the fiber specific level rather than whole muscle. Um, and then you've got more voluntary agonist activation, down regulation of any kind of inhibitory response from the nervous system. You've got all kinds of things going on that 
um, are going to be important for athletes. And that's not to paint it with a broad brush either and say like, oh, well, because of that list, I should, I should only uh, focus on, on eccentric training. It is a, a piece of the puzzle there. Um, but I, I do think a, an underappreciated uh, programming variable, especially with its versatility. So tell me this, why, based on all those benefits, why would, not to say people are, but why would people not take this on board and implement some of it into their training program? What are the, what are the downsides? It seems like there's lots of upsides. Yeah, I, I mean, some of it is certainly on the athlete safety side. Uh, we see super maximal eccentric loading and um, that gets bucketed, as you mentioned before, that kind of all gets bucketed into eccentric training. Although eccentric training does not necessarily have to be super maximal. But I do think there's still a little bit of a stigma that this is a very stressful stimulus. And it is, like even in the, in the submaximal versions of it, like there, there's certainly um, some physiological stress associated with this that doesn't necessarily appear with other training methods. But, um, you know, I, I think there is a way to program it in. But I do think when people especially are dealing with team sports and there's a thousand different factors and all that complexity there, that there's just some apprehension. Uh, to, to fit this in just because uh, of the potential implications for recovery status. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess that's a big one. The recovery status is the, I suppose, the key, especially with the sure. Nordic. Obviously, we've we've been through that debate a million times, as sure as yeah. everyone else has as well. But even so, n not looking at the Nordic, that's a big a big flag for, for anyone. Yeah, and, and people point very readily to the repeated bout effect, and, and that's certainly, you know, something that we need to consider. But, um, you know, with the progression, the variation, those other, you know, aspects that we're considering there, like you're still going to be disruptive to the, to the recovery status of the athlete if, you're, if you are progressing and providing adequate variation regardless of uh, what you're doing with the eccentric training side. And so it, it never goes away. The, the repeated bout effect doesn't absolve us from considering, uh, you know, the, the stress induced from, from eccentric training. So you mentioned that the progression. I think that'd be a really nice place to go next, this this little, little part of the conversation. So for anyone listening who hasn't introduced eccentric focused training before, where would you start? And what's the logical... I know this is, a, again, super wide brushstroke with, with yeah. getting, getting everything in there. But what would you recommend for people to progress from start to, to end? Not there is an end, but end. Yeah, um, the the kind of level zero for me uh, would be the the tempo or movement cadence manipulation with eccentric training. Um, there, there's actually not a ton of support <laughs> for it, um, especially when it comes to like strength power adaptations, which is pretty logical. If you know, if I slow the eccentric phase down, I'm gonna I'm not gonna be able to use as much weight. And that intensity downshift really has implications for strength power changes. And there's there's certainly been some studies that have demonstrated muscle size changes. But uh, I my interpretation of literature and, and certainly others have have different interpretations. But I have yet to be convinced that uh, slowing down the eccentric phase, for example, is superior than just regular old resistance training without a, a targeted approach to movement cadence. But 
That being said, I, I do think that there's a lot to be gained. Um, and this is really regardless of who you're working with. I think there's a time and a place each year uh, within an annual plan to revisit technique and to make sure that those things are really, really sound uh, and that they are exactly how you want them as a coach. And that's both for athlete safety, but to make sure you're stressing tissues in the way that you intend. Um, and then that's really where technique's important for me uh, outside of the athlete safety piece. So I think that's kind of your level zero, but um, I like flywheel as, as the next logical progression there. Um, there's, there's a little bit of a, a elongation, I'll call it, between the eccentric and concentric phase when you have to overcome that inertia at the bottom of, let's just say, a squat that I think can, can give people time to produce a lot of force. Um, but they're not necessarily ready to produce that force rapidly. And so the flywheel kind of lends itself well next. Plus, there's a little bit more support on the hypertrophy side. Um, and especially for lesser trained athletes, like you'll see some strength, power, speed, change of direction changes as well. Um, that, that's pretty well supported. Um, and so to me, that, that's the next logical step. And then you get into things like AEL and some of that versatility, you, you might progress within that with submaximal to supermaximal and, and things of that nature. But AEL then because of the um, higher eccentric rate of force development, most notably, that lends itself really well to then progress to plyometrics and, and really top speed sprinting and those things, which to me are, are kind of the tail end of what you'd uh, want to expose that athlete to in terms of uh, the highest level of, of eccentric stress. So um, whether you want to bucket plyometrics into eccentric training is kind of up to your interpretation. Um, but to me, that's kind of the end of the road. And AEL does a good job to set you up uh, for some of those more advanced plyometrics. But all that being said, I, I think it's important, too, that it's more about the blend of these methods, that you're not necessarily going to do one in isolation, that there, there's going to be kind of elements of each, uh, no matter what stage of training that you're in. And that's that's important. Um, to be able to set you up for success in progression. So that's another important piece to consider. Just going back right to the start of that, that continuum with the, with tempo. Mm -hmm. So based on what you've said around the, the evidence, where does the hype come from in, in that area? Because anyone, not to dumb it down to, to my level here, but anyone that goes to the gym for the first time or speaks to someone at the gym and, and wants to get, Put on some put on some size. That seems to be. I mean, this is the potential bro science, but where does that hype come from? Because it, it's hundred percent would make it will make its way into professional sport because it inevitably does. Um, whether players speak to people themselves or read something somewhere. So where's that actually come from? Um, I think some of it uh, certainly comes from the uh, resistance training status of most athletes. That it's not as far along as as maybe some of us would like to admit. And so there's nothing wrong with starting at that level zero or, or getting that, that technique really dialed in, especially some sports uh, lend themselves to a lot of movement restrictions just by nature of playing. You know, in my time in basketball, uh, you know, teaching those guys to squat uh, was a multiple week endeavor. And so tempo training was a really good tool for me. Uh, with that population. And so I, I do think that that's, that's some of it. Um, I also think that there's, uh, and this is maybe not a, a very popular opinion, uh, and, and it's not being critical of anyone in particular, but I, I do think there's an element of uh, managing the perception of a good strength conditioning session. 
that if you slow things down and everything looks really clean and, uh, you know, an administrator or a, a front office member or, you know, a head coach or whoever would were to walk by, um, even if you do not have any domain specific knowledge of strength conditioning, you would walk by and say, wow, like that is a, that is a really clean looking session. Um, and so it lends itself really well for those, those internal perceptions, but obviously it lends itself very well for, for external perception as well. If, if that were to exist on, on social media or anything like that, like that, that, um, that paints the session in a very positive light. Um, and I have nothing, not opposed to that at all. Um, I just would also advocate for it being supported from a like training stimulus side um, and not just primarily emphasized on those things. Of course, I understand. Very diplomatic. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I needed to be there. <laughs> you did, you did, you did well, did very well. So on the flywheel side, mm-hmm. diving into that, that's obviously a continuum within its continuum within itself, <clears throat> within sure. this bigger, bigger eccentric training continuum. Yeah. How can so, how can people how can people develop fly develop their use of flywheel to then progress onto AEL and we'll jump onto that in a second. But within that flywheel part, how can people develop that um, individually? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, the most important thing I think in terms of progressing to AEL that flywheel does is, and I mentioned this prior, but having that longer transition between the eccentric and concentric phase. Um, This is important, uh, especially if you do have a rehab situation or or something like that. But I think it's even important if you have a healthy athlete to give them more time uh, to produce force. Um, And there's also an element here where the athlete can control the intensity. You know, a lot of the, the eccentric overload present in flywheel training is mediated by the concentric velocity. Um, and so though there is an element of progressive overload in absolute terms with the size of the wheel, um, a big, big chunk of that is mediated by the athlete. And so you've got a little bit more versatility there to meet athletes where they're at um, and uh, progress them accordingly. And so that, that kind of not only lets you exercise, er, manipulate the exercise itself, but also the loading without making a bunch of changes to you know the, the wheel or anything like that, which... Yeah, I think all of those point to being a prerequisite for AEL, but um, there's for, there's a little bit more versatility there than than you'd think too. So for anyone that doesn't have the budget or the option to tap into flywheel technology, is there anything that would would go in its place if if that's not the case, or would you have to prolong the the tempo side to get to your AEL, which we're, again we'll get to in a second. Yeah, I, I think in that situation, I would probably just recommend um, being a little bit more creative in program design for AEL itself, um, which like that's easy for me to say because I have spent a lot of time programming AEL and, and learning in that space. So I, I'm certainly biased uh, in that regard. But um, I, I do think that AEL gets quickly pointed to this, the super maximal version of it and there there is a lot of support for some possibly even more support for sub maximal sub maximal variations there and so I, I think if you do not have the flywheel uh there there's ways that you can implement weight releasers or manual uh eccentric resistance or eccentric overload to provide you a bridge to some of the more aggressive um ael tactics um but you, you'd certainly need to 
open up the playbook a little bit there. So, A-E-L. Firstly, what does it stand for? Yes, I've let it go however many minutes, 20 minutes, and we've mentioned it a few times, so my bad there. But what does it stand for? And give us a bit of a, a definition, and then we'll dive into it a bit more. Yeah, uh, so accentuated eccentric loading is what AEL stands for. And going back to kind of how I was progressing in my dissertation, as I dove into a lot of that literature, there wasn't a very clear definition, which created a ton of confusion. You will, if you, if you went on Google Scholar, and searched AEL, you would have just as many flywheel papers come up as, as you would anything. And so uh, that, that created a lot of confusion because the same term was being used for, in my opinion, and, and really not just my opinion, what effects you would observe from these different types of eccentric loading. They're very dis- unique and distinctly different. Um, and so I, I thought along with others that were involved that we needed to provide a definition. Um, to be able to distinguish this from tempo and from flywheel and, and these other methods. Um, but our first criteria was just that the eccentric load was in excess of the concentric load. So again, doesn't need to be super maximal, um, but does need to be more than what you're loading on the concentric side, which automatically makes it different from tempo training, where you have the same load on the barbell the whole time, and flywheel, where you have the same inertial load um, on the way down and on the way up. Excuse me. We also needed a coupled eccentric and concentric action. Sorry, taking a quick drink of water. That's all right. Which made it distinct from negatives. So the eccentric only training, we needed to differentiate from that as well. So we have greater eccentric load than concentric load, coupled eccentric and concentric action. Then the third piece, which is more on the practical side, we needed minimal interruption to the natural mechanics of the selected exercise, which I would argue um, further differentiates it from flywheel, um, just because a lot of times you know you're wearing a harness, and if anyone's ever been on the flywheel device, it's it's a great training tool. So this isn't a criticism, but um, if you squat on a flywheel, it's different than when you're squatting with a barbell in terms of the the mechanics. And so um, there is some fundamental changes there, which again is going to stress tissue differently. And so those three pieces uh, were how we kind of separated AEL from the other eccentric training methods. Just writing them down. Um, so in this phase, so to, to get all them three, to hit all them three boxes, what strategies can we put in place as, as coaches to be able to create that scenario in various different exercises? Yep. Um so yeah, you do have manual resistance. Uh, actually, the, the first AEL paper was in the 70s and um, a gym coach uh, was pushing down on people uh, while they were raising themselves up uh, or lowering themselves down, excuse me, in a push-up and then letting the hand go. And so that was actually the, the first one. Um, but so manual resistance, there's weight releasers, uh, which are kind of sold all over the place now by, by a couple different folks. Um, Thirdly, there, there are some special devices too. There, there's one, I think it's called the Max Out, um, but there, there are some specialty devices. And then lastly, especially when you're applying to plyometrics, you can hold dumbbells or you, or you can you can hold onto a band or something like that to create some, some tension and some resistance in the eccentric phase. Um, but, but there are some simpler applications there. And the plyometric side is actually a, a place where I personally like, I'm a big advocate of, of programming AEL. So 
I know we've gone through the benefits of eccentric training globally at the start. Mm-hmm. So specific benefits of those which are inherent with AEL, is there anything that you could dive into for us? Yeah, outside of what we've covered, which all of basically what I've covered has been supported in the AEL literature as well. Um, another piece that I don't believe I mentioned earlier on kind of the um, anabolic side, there, there does tend to be an acute testosterone and growth hormone response that persists a little bit longer than with traditional loading. Um, and also, and this one's to me one of the more interesting pieces, um, but there's possibly some alterations in like glycolytic enzyme production and lactate clearance ability with AEL, which could have some, uh, some advantages for even sports that have a large endurance component. Um, you know, I, I think of the soccers of the world or, a, you know, a 400 meter runner or so, something like that, where um, this was typically, AEL was typically kind of reserved for these strength power athlete types. And that may not be the case. Now the, the, um, the glycolytic enzyme side and the lactate clearance side, you know, it's pretty thinly supported. I think only a couple of papers, but intriguing enough to where, you know, I, I think that there's something there to, to continue to explore. From your experience on the, the manual resistance, cause that's the one that's most um, the, the biggest option for people, given there's no barrier to entry in terms of cost. Is there anything, any specific exercises that work well with that? I know you've mentioned push-ups there as a super simple example. Or yep. more, probably more importantly, any that aren't from your experience? Um, the are, the I mean, pull-ups can, can lend themselves well. I mean, that's basically what you do with, with negatives. I know that's not AEL, but you know, that's pull-ups lend themselves well really any body weight exercise inverted row you could figure out ways to manually resist that yeah i think the ones that don't are probably the the lower body minus something like a nordic leg curl and that's that's really just because you got to be really strong as a coach to be able to provide enough resistance to really even change what's occurring um with some of those lower body body weight exercises um but uh but, but i think the nordic leg curl would be another where you could you probably actually provide more manual assistance and progress the eccentric stress rather than pushing someone down uh, in the eccentric phase. Though if you did have someone very strong, that would that would be an option. But you know, I think especially with the Nordic, a lot of times it, it gets criticized because of the free fall, and you can progress the eccentric overload by actually providing them a little bit of assistance uh, so they can get to those longer lever lengths. Yeah, I think I saw who was it? Um, Houston basketball. Yeah, with, yeah, no, I don't, yeah, I don't know what device it was. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Somebody's um, obviously been clever in, in creating that, but I haven't seen that before. Yeah, I had either. I actually saw that this morning as well. Yeah, yeah. So that was giving assistance um, through a count, uh, uh, cantilevered weight position, so they could, yep. yeah, get to them deep positions. Okay, nice. Like it. What we're watching the same people. Spy yeah. on the spy on the same people. Yeah, that was really good. That yeah. was really sharp. Yeah, yeah. So, like you mentioned, AEL seems to have a tag that it is for um, high end athletes. But is that is that is that the case? Can can low end athletes benefit from some of the methods that the manual, the weight re- weight releases, etc. That we just mentioned? 
Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, and again, the technique piece is going to be where the novice or less trained athletes really get kind of tripped up. I think in terms of, of loading and, and the stimulus you're providing, there, there's not really a barrier of entry there besides that, you know, obviously you have to consider that eccentric training is pretty stressful. Um, and so they, they are probably going to take a little bit longer to get through the recovery process from that training. So that, that's a consideration, but, um, it, you know, I, and I think too, if you're, if you're looking to apply AEL for potentiation, you've got a much narrower window to operate with to actually induce that potentiation. Just because, you know, with AEL uh, or really any, uh, you know, protocol that you're looking to induce potentiation, you're walking a tightrope between fatigue and potentiation. And those weaker athletes or less trained athletes, that tightrope's just going to be much thinner. <laughs> and, and so those that are stronger... Um, probably or, or maybe even theoretically have a little bit more uh, margin for error on program selection. And so that, that's another consideration. That you need to go back to the why you're, you're implementing AEL or really any um, eccentric training method. And if that why is potentiation, the weaker, less trained, I think, have a little bit uh, more reason to not go that route. Let's have a little dive into that post-activation potentiation side any recommendations for, for people who are looking into this area to tick that box timings potential exercise selection yeah um this was actually what i was more interested in so my dissertation was more on the um acute potentiation side and, and kind of what's happening there i thought for sure uh with kind of the mechanistic underpinnings there that there would be a potentiating effect with with ael so um, which some of those mechanistic underpinnings, you, you got the muscles just in a greater active state, more calcium sensitivity. Yeah, you, you've got some things that are going on there that, that lend themselves very well that you'd think like, oh, this is going to induce some potentiation. But um, it's actually a really mixed bag, uh, especially when it's narrowed to resistance training exercises. So a squat using weight releasers or bench press using weight releasers. Uh, there's... There's just as much that it's um, detrimental to that acute performance as it is beneficial. And there appears to be just, a, a again, a pretty big sensitivity in, in program design and load structure um, to where if you were going to apply it uh, to resistance training movements, I think it would be best to do that alongside some sort of augmented feedback, like a you know velocity measurement or a between set counter movement jump or you know something like that just to make sure you're not burying the athlete or, or ha not having the effect that you desire there um, but on the plyometric side it's still a little bit of a mixed bag but you have a little bit more clarity in terms of uh, what is probably going to work and what is probably not going to work and the studies that do have a favorable acute effect from AEL tend to be ones that have conservative loading. So, you know, holding like a 10 kilo pair of dumbbells uh, during a counter movement jump or, or a depth jump or whatever the case may be. And then also uh, plyos that have a, a lesser uh, center of mass displacement during the eccentric phase. So those that have a really large displacement and people are going into like a full squat, uh, AEL doesn't tend to work very well. Uh, and it's really just probably the work being done due to that added displacement is, is causing a fatigue effect. Um, but the tight coupling, the rapid eccentric action uh, with an eccentric overload 
uh, does appear to be where you can induce some potentiation. So that's where uh, within session, I'm a big fan of of holding dumbbells during plyometrics and, and letting them go at the bottom of the descent and, and doing some, some different things there because I feel a little bit better about the state of the literature uh, and the clarity that's that's provided there with plyos versus resistance training applications with potentiation. Now, if we're looking at the longer term, then the resistance training is a little bit more well-supported there, but um, for short-term stuff, the plyos, that's kind of where, where I'm at with it. So the, with the plyo sticking stick in there for a second, with the longer-term longer term goal in mind, is there any place in the season or place in the, in the week that you would recommend that that goes, or particularly with certain type of player that you would recommend that be used? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's uh, typically my microcycle structure. There's a little bit more stressful contents at the beginning of the week and less stressful contents at the end, just because if we're going to progress in intensity or, or load or whatever, microcycle to microcycle, providing that recovery at the back end is really important to put them in a position to do so. Um, so uh, AEL to me fits better at the front end of a microcycle. Uh, and particularly in season, which is, uh, I believe, you know, the specific time period of what you had. I think for players that um, have a high speed running demand or especially upright top speed type mechanics running, having an AEL plyometric early in the week to expose them to some higher eccentric rate of force developments, but not necessarily what they're going to encounter sprinting, and then have a top speed exposure late in the week, uh, which, you know, for us, we, we play every day in baseball. And so obviously they're going to encounter top speed sometime in between there, but when it's an emphasis within their training um, is kind of how I would, how I would look at that. But you could be a little bit cleaner in application with sports like soccer or uh, those that don't play every single day. But uh, generally speaking, I think that AEL does a good job, especially when, when programmed with plyos in staging some uh, of the, the sprinting that you're going to need to encounter later in the week. I still find it absolutely wild that these guys, your guys, are doing what the, the amount of work that they do. And just in terms of like, even if they weren't playing, just getting around all these different places, it's not it's not like England where you can get to the end of the country in four or five hours. Like, you guys are traveling all over the place. It's, yeah, it's Incredible. wild. Incredible. Probably the biggest adjustment that I've had to make is the scope of the operation being spread out all over the country is really uh, the players hats off to them for, <laughs> for being able to go out and perform when they're spread out like that is, is really remarkable. So just going to take a very quick break in the chat with John. Hope you enjoyed part one. I certainly did. In part two, we discuss a lot more around, again, eccentric training. And we move on to something we've discussed a couple of times, but not actually got into the weeds of, which is AEL. So I'll leave that description of what that actually is and how we can use it to John, who will do a much better job than me. But there's a great part two coming up, which I'm sure you'll really enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Black Box are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Black Box manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. 
If you want to learn more about Black Box, check out their website, blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at Black Box Fitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, Applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit stantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And back to the interview with John. So you've mentioned the the dropping of dumbbells on the on the eccentric phase to, to then obviously... Um, without them on the concentric phase is there any other application of AEL in terms of jumps that people could have a little have a little play with yeah I, I like it you know kind of again putting this on a spectrum um if you have the the AEL counter movement jump as step one and then you progressed uh kind of using the higher eccentric rate of force moment that you got from that um AEL counter movement jump to set you up for success with a depth jump or shock method Okay. Uh, kind of whatever you want to call it. But then you can actually progress from that by bringing AEL back and holding it while you step off the box, let it go when you hit the ground and, and proceed as as you would with the normal uh, shock method uh, type of plyometric training. And so um, that's where I, I think you can, you can add a wrinkle that maybe wasn't as popularly programmed uh, as was in the past. Cause I think that then sets you up for things, you know, repeat serial jumps like hurdles, things that are, that are very aggressive in my opinion. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's kind of where I see that fitting on a, on a spectrum of plyometrics, but the application doesn't necessarily need to be any different. I think dumbbells are pretty, pretty versatile across, across that whole thing. But obviously with them, with them progressions, people need to be careful 
because they'll get buried and get buried yeah. pretty easy, yeah. pretty pretty uh, pretty quickly with with without identifying the right athlete and they're at the right stage of development. Yeah, and I think too. Um, one thing that did come from my dissertation, which this isn't applied to plyos, we actually saw this uh, using the back squat and weight releasers. But in terms of stress management and even session management, there's potentially uh, the opportunity for the athlete to hold on to those high eccentric rates of force development uh, for subsequent repetitions, even after the eccentric overload is gone. So uh, what we observed was overloading only the first repetition uh, our subjects held on to those high eccentric rates of force development for reps two and reps three, even when the weight releasers weren't on the bar anymore. Interesting. Okay. So um, if you then were pretty liberal <laughs> in your application to plyometrics, you, you could, if you're doing three, four repetitions, like you don't necessarily um, need to overload every single one because th there are some practical barriers too. Like you got to go pick the dumbbells up or you got to put the weight releasers back on. Um, but you know, practical barriers aside, there's also a load management component there that, that you can kind of distribute that a little bit more easily than we thought in the past. Just logistically, we mentioned baseball and how, how crazy it can it can get the majority of the time. Implementation of this when guys are on the road, is that something that you do while you're, you're keeping it for, for, for when people are on a bit more on site, how do you, how do you manage that logistically? Yeah, I, I can't say that there's a ton that's done in season, uh, on the weight releaser side. Uh, we do use the flywheel, uh, with, with some players and we, uh, obviously program a lot on the plyometric side. Um, but during the off season, we will, we will use it to solve a particular performance problem. Um, and not necessarily the, any athlete couldn't benefit from being more explosive or powerful or anything like that. But we do face, you know, baseball is a very skill dominant sport. You know, there's a lot of people that are, you know, maybe their physical profile isn't overly impressive, but they are among the world's best in, in their sport because they, they are so skilled. Um, but there are also times where um, the skill is there, but the physical is limiting their ability to express that skill. And so in the off season, sometimes we will have players that, hey, um, this person's explosiveness uh, is limiting their ability to do what they need to do at the plate or on the mound or whatever the case may be. And so that's where AEL will get a little bit more run and we'll, we'll use it in almost a full block um, or even multiple blocks of training in the off season because we're not as worried about the, the fatigue management side either. Um, and they don't have as much going on. There's not as many factors to consider, but with all of the explosive performance with the muscle phenotype changes, the neuro neuromuscular adaptations, the uh, all those things that we've already covered in, at length here, with all of those in place, if, if, if the person's explosiveness is limiting their ability to do their job um, or, or limiting their ability to do their job to the level that they need to, uh, that's where we will very judiciously program ADL because of, of what we think we're going to see uh, from an adaptation standpoint. And that's particularly the case if a player is multiple years into our system, that that he's now an advanced training status athlete. And just like with any advanced training status athlete, you have to provide them even more overload, even more variation, even more novelty in order to drive a new adaptation. And so AEL lends itself really well in the off season when we do have those 
specific cases, and we've done that on on multiple occasions here. I was speaking to Damien Harper, and anyone mm-hmm. that knows of Damien's work in, in deceleration, this this links very well with my conversation with him because he talked a lot about um, eccentric loading and, and AEL. So that's that's a nice link with the deceleration component of the dynamic performance that we we spoke about right at the start. Yeah, Damien's brilliant. He's doing a lot of really good work, and and he's another one that I, I didn't mention earlier that is critical in popularizing eccentric training too, um, because he he's now linked it to um, an athletic action that that is you know in pretty much every sport, and so that's made it. Uh, he's done a lot of really good work on the research side, but also on the applied side. So it's been impressive to follow. So. Just off topic slightly, John, I'm really interested to hear where you fit in the organization. So as Director of Performance Science and Play Development, where do, where do you sit? What's your roles and responsibility? I know this probably is a question for the start, but I'm just interested based on our, based on our chat. Yeah, um, so I basically exist to support other people um, and to, to collaborate effectively. Uh, you know, on the player development side, uh, we have director of hitting and pitching performance that are you know kind of our technical tactical coaches with our position players and and pitchers. Uh, so I work really really closely with them and, and their staffs. But we also have domain experts in a lot of different areas: uh, behavioral science, leadership development, nutrition, uh, you know, strength conditioning. All all of those areas, you know, I, I work I work very closely with and do oversee the strength conditioning. Uh, side, but uh, physical therapy, medical, all of those pieces kind of come together uh, in the development of our players. And then, uh, you know, someone that I work very, very closely with, uh, Austin Driggers, who's brilliant. Uh, He provides the performance science support at the major league level. So he's based in Kansas City. So, um, you know, that we need to have an effective bridge to what's happening at the major league level. Um, But on the PD side, on the player development side, like we're tasked with uh, developing championship caliber players and, and getting them to the major leagues. Um, and, and so that's that's not done by any single person. It's done by that village and collection of people. And and all of our success is, is very intimately uh, you know tied together. And so that's that's really where, where my role sits is to help answer those performance questions, uh, to ask really good questions too, and then just help people um, be more effective in what they're trying to do talking about asking good questions i hope i've got what I, what people wanted out for me to get out of you in terms of eccentric training but one thing that i think i have missed is where this fits in into a into the bigger program into the the traditional lift the traditional training methods and to pre-caution people not to and this is putting words in your mouth now to not this isn't this isn't the program this is part of a program so it's yeah. just getting your opinion on where that where it really sits yeah um and i i will give a, a more concrete answer but like of course i have to start with like it depends on what adaptation you're trying to induce and so we've talked about a spectrum of things whether that be maybe favorable for the conditioning side on up to the neuromuscular system or at, at the muscle phenotype level like there, there's a lot of different ways to go about this so First and foremost, you have to be adaptation-led in your decisions and where you're going to put things in into a program or into an annual plan. Um, but uh, with AEL specifically, I, I do think it, it fits very neatly. Um, at the tail end, when you do have a demand to either develop a little bit of max strength or retain the max strength that you've already developed, um, but stage some of those higher power output, higher velocity efforts, 
maybe you have more top speed sprinting or you're um, you're trying to jump your highest, run your fastest, be at your best, you know, kind of staging a taper um, would, would kind of be where I would, I would put that um, not only for what it can retain, but what it can expose the athlete to in terms of high eccentric rates of force development. And if you are going to follow a yell with a taper, uh, you're okay with the intentional high stress nature of that eccentric training. And so if you're, if you're going to pull training contents away uh, to, to promote that recovery, AEL fits really, really well as part of an overreach to stage a taper or the block prior um, to, to set that stuff up. And so um, that, that's if I were um, going to program it exactly where I wanted, that's, that's kind of where I, would, where I would put that. Superb. Well, 5-5 minutes is absolutely flown, and I've got a bunch of notes that I'm sure everyone else has who's who's listening to this as well. But what's what's next for you in this area in terms of research and where can people find the work that you've already done? Yeah, um, so I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, I, I work in the applied setting now, so I'm, I'm outside the traditional lab, uh, but I have a lot of people that are willing to collaborate. Uh, so I, I've partnered with some people at Sacred Heart we've, uh, with Dr. Chris Tabor and, and the folks that he's working with there. Um, we, we've produced some more AEL research, particularly with uh, the bench press, still using the weight releasers. Um, and then I partner with some people at West Virginia. That's more on the, the counter movement jump uh, side of, of things rather than AEL. But um, I, I'm just really, really fortunate to have made some good connections that can keep me uh, in the research world. But um, that, that's not necessarily my, my primary uh, thing at this point but if you want to see any of that work or or hear any of my my random thoughts on on sports science or training I'm probably most accessible on on Twitter I don't even have an Instagram or anything like that but or Facebook but I, I do I get on Twitter quite a bit um, so happy to engage with anybody there and what's the all-important Twitter handle John uh at Dr. John P. Waggle nice well remembered well remembered but no, thank, thank you very much for giving up 45 minutes of your time. And the dog, anyone that's watching on video, the dog has done absolutely superb yeah. in the yeah. background. Kept nice and quiet. Super chilled, super chilled. So yeah, thank you very much and uh, look forward to chatting to you soon. Yes, sir. Thanks, Rob. Cheers, John. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to John for giving up his time. I know he's a very busy guy on the road, so I really do appreciate him sparing an hour to chat eccentric training with me. So also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I do really do appreciate their support. Make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player if you want to keep up to date with what's going on on the Pace of Performance podcast. Got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, namely someone from the NFL coming up next week, which I'm absolutely delighted and really excited to, to launch next week. So thanks again for your support, and I will speak to you soon.